2: A Living
0: History Production.
3: I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together
1: we're Pete
0: and Gary's Military History
1: Podcast.
3: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and once more joined by Peter Hart. And Hello. We're, we're at Shea Hart's this morning. It's lovely, isn't it? It's a while since we've been in, in fact. It's three days since I've yeah, three days. days. Yeah, feels much longer.
1: Yeah, your life is... <laughs> it's a... T- a <laughs> tedium. Today,
3: we're talking about something that, as our listeners will understand, we know an awful lot about. Ah, oh, we're experts. Well, we are now after a hundred and however many fifty-odd podcasts, because today, Pete, it's uh, another In the Laugh or Cry series. have they
1: bought the bloody book yet, Gary?
3: <laughs> well, not enough, I'm afraid, Pete. We are, are we still-, still poor pensioners. Oh. Now, today, Pete, it's You Can't Eat the Wireless. Oh, for
1: cry, you can't eat the
3: wireless? What's that right. oh, I think that's uh, uh, because at the time we, we were writing the book about um, pigeons and what inevitably happens to them.
1: <laughs> Shh, you'll give it away, Gary. <laughs>
3: so, communications were crucial. To the British Army, especially those sort of earth induction communications.
1: Could you explain what that when, in what some What they called I don't know. Let's just not think about it.
3: <laughs> but they were crucial on the Western Front. In the early days, wireless was too new to be widespread, because you've got to think about where they were in terms of communication at that point. But telephone lines were a nightmare. Why was that? Well, because a telephone line has to be in one piece. And what was uh, likely to mean they weren't? Well, uh, German shellfire uh, and uh, and the great British soldier. <laughs> if you so see what I'm- they soon realised that they'd have to be duplicated or triplicated, even if that's a word, to form a virtual ladder that would give them some hope of keeping open a line between the front line and the headquarters well behind
1: the lines there, probably a chateau full of them generals. chateau generals. So there's wires here, there, and everywhere, and and they could be a bloody nuisance for the lads passing up the communication trenches. And this is what? Second Lieutenant Julian Tinderdale Biscow. That's easy for you to say. (laughs) Seems to be difficult. Of C Battery, RHA, Royal Horse Artillery, Gary. Fine body of men. On the way to the observation post...
3: We have to pass a place known as Suicide Corner, which is subject to frequent bursts of shrapnel. After a dash along there, one continues in a trench, which is even more of a trial to one's temper, especially at night, as telephone lines are laid across it in most ingenious ways. First, there is a wire just at a suitable distance from the ground to trip you up into an especially filthy pool of wet mud. After getting up and walking carefully, picking your feet well up, a wire knocks your hat off and manages to detach the badge, which entails a hunt of several minutes according to how far the badge had sunk in the mud and the distance that the hat has rolled. One proceeds again and next runs hard up against a wire stretched tight
1: across just at the height of your neck. Yeah, so these wires get broken by the great British soldier quite a lot. Um, now, signallers, the, the brakes, one of the worst jobs in the Great War was being a signaller. Why would that be, Gary? Well,
3: because you've got to fix the brakes wherever they were as best you could. And sometimes the brakes weren't just down to the Germans alone. We have
1: we have slightly mentioned that, haven't we? We've, we've implied... You've that alluded
3: to it. Oh! Have
1: you been reading the dictionary again i might have been you're up to a l are you a double l cool now this
3: is private jw mortimer don't know what the jw stands for of the 115th heavy battery royal garrison artillery so you didn't
1: know what the rga stood for (laughs) yes yeah i started at the back of the dictionary it was on the somme we were out in the open and we made a dugout for ourselves I've been doing some washing, shirts, and for the want of a line, I was looking round. There were hundreds and hundreds of telephone lines in the trenches. Obsolete lines. I got a pair of pliers and cut a few dozen or so yards of telephone line to use as a clothesline, thinking, thinking it was obsolete. Quite innocently, I cut this line. Oh, I should have known better, of course. Later on in the day, there was a hell of a commotion. They couldn't get through to headquarters down in Alba. Some swearing <laughs> signalers came up. Walked all the way to find the line cut. Oh the bloody hell and cut their line. I said nothing, of course. <laughs> I kept doggo. If they'd seen the clothesline out there, they'd have recognised it. It was the headquarters telephone line I'd cut. The battery was out of touch with the headquarters for six to eight hours. I thought I'd had a lucky escape this time. Oh, I might have been court-martialed. But there's a variety of things that can break it. There's accidents, there's German shell fire, there's uh, just anything. Um, heavy socks. F- heavy socks. Further back, there's things like uh, lorries or, or, or horse and carts ammunition thing there's just a million things that that can seem to break telephone wires low flying pigeons yes now uh, what's one of the problems about using telephone lines i mean you you might want to explain what 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 it is
3: Well, I I presume you're making an allusion to how you used it. So the fact that they usually use plain speech over the telephone. They
1: did. Uh, I'll use plain speech here in a minute.
3: (laughs) But they became increasingly worried as to the ability of the Germans to intercept messages via induction. How does that work? Uh, It's like, you you know, the hot plate, induction hot plates. It's nothing like them. Uh, And that led on occasion... to to the use of a simple code. I'm a bit worried about how simple this might be. This, in turn, could cause embarrassment all round. So
1: what does uh, uh, Major Herbert Wenyon, 8th Royal West Kent Regiment, say about this? One afternoon, after a perfectly
3: quiet and uneventful day, in which there was absolutely nothing to put in the intelligence report, which was then due... The company commander in the front line decided, in order to save a run of the journey back with the report, to send it over the telephone by code. This consisted of groups of figures representing sentences in general use. For instance, the sentence, our rum has not yet arrived, might be represented by the figures 528, and please expedite by 172. In this case, the message selected was situation normal which was duly dispatched to Battalion Headquarters. A few minutes later, the company commander was rung up on the telephone by the Battalion Intelligence Officer. He gathered that his, his message had caused considerable alarm and despondency at Battalion Headquarters. He was able to reassure them until the report could be sent down by hand, and he then discovered that the message, as deciphered, read, Tanks are approaching! Ah! which had not unnaturally caused a considerable stir. And the commanding officer was already on his way up, armed with field glasses to investigate. They'd sent the wrong number, hadn't they? They had, yeah. Now, the choice of code was it could also lead to amusement when, uh, when combined. And this is Lieutenant John Hills of the 5th Leicestershire
1: Regiment. The next stage was the introduction of codes and code names. At first, these were very simple. We were John, after Colonel Jones, while Gas became the innocent Gertie, and to attack was to tickle. Uh, oh, see where, this... see where
3: this is going <laughs> to go.
1: One very famous message was sent when an expected gas attack had to be suddenly postponed. Here we go, Gary. Are you ready? Yeah. John can sleep quiet tonight. Gertie will not tickle. <laughs> so childish.
3: Now, old-fashioned. Uh, one old-fashioned method of communication was... Pressed back into use was the employment of homing pigeons, which we've referred to, to carry messages back. The system was simple, at least in
1: theory. So, this is our our rifleman, Gerald Dennis of the 21st Kings Royal Rifle Corps. Fine body of men.
3: The signal section had attached to it a pigeon man. Wakelin was a very quiet person. He looked after our birds, which were for emergency use only. He had two pigeons and every morning at nine o'clock he freed one and it flew up into the sky from the slight clearing in the wood and usually flew around once or twice to get its bearings and then set off for the brigade pigeon loft. It had been kept unfed and so flew straight back. Not long afterwards, a dispatch rider brought up another one, fed before he'd set off with it. The next morning, the other one, by now hungry, was freed. If a message had to be sent, it was first made out in triplicate. One copy was kept in the signal office in the sent out tray and the other two copies were put into a very light aluminium container which had two soft catches attached to it and these were put round the pigeon's
1: leg. Now this is what I like because as we said it's laugh or cry and and occasionally we we have to explain and that's a... That's very descriptive. It just explains the whole system. Uh, It sounds foolproof to me. I can't imagine anything going wrong Gary. No, things could go wrong. The first problem was, and again, we've alluded to this, the first problem was
3: the edible nature of pigeons. In a world where soldiers endured a monotonous diet, a tasty treat was something uh, sometimes difficult to resist.
1: You've uh, had problems resisting tasty treats throughout your life, haven't you? Well, there's you for starters, Pete.
3: And this is uh, Rifleman Gerald Dennis once more uh, going on to explain. On two occasions, when he arrived from the brigade pigeon loft, the dispatch rider reported that our pigeon had not arrived back at the loft. Could a German sniper be such a crack shot that he had been successful in hitting our birds as they circled above the trees before turning away from his lines? If so, where were the bodies? Why had not we who watched it set off, noticed its fall? What was to have been a well-kept secret was later disclosed. It seemed that at a company mess one evening, an officer had said in fun more than anything else to his cook, Batman, Can't you do better than this with the bully beef? The Batman, who had been a gamekeeper in civil life, took the remark as a challenge. The next evening and the evening after that, the officer's dinner was supplemented with pigeon pie, a rare delicacy and much enjoyed. However, after the second tasty dish, the Batman's own officer gave him a hint that he'd better not produce another titbit like those pies. Our pigeon service continued normally after that.
1: And I do like that. Um, the, the, um, the 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 next one is just fairly surrealistic to me. I'm sorry you're doing so much work, Gary. I, I I'll get sc- my own
3: back later.
1: Oh, right. Um, th- but this is uh, Major William Lowe of the 18th Durham Light Infantry, so I'm expecting your best Durham accent. Um, And, uh, you see, when you're doing pigeon handling, Gary, when you're handling pigeons, um, there's the things you have to know or the system goes wrong. And at the root of this is, like yourself, Gary, pigeons have feelings.
3: And this is a major from uh, the Durham Light Infantry, so I shall do an appropriate accent. We received our first basket of pigeons... Some of the higher staff being anxious to see that their release, etc., was carried out properly. Visited battalion headquarters to observe the results. Unfortunately, those in charge of the pigeon loft some miles in the rear did not then know all there was to know about pigeons, and instead of sending two cock or two hen pigeons, (laughs) sent one of each. On, On their release with the messages clipped on their wings the amateur couple, disregarding their military duties entirely, proceeded to fly over to Sea, and, lighting on an old ruin, perched there, billing and cooing, wholly oblivious of business. Whether they ever were pricked by a conscience and returned to their own pigeon loft is
1: unknown, as the staff lost patience and went home to tea. <laughs> I like that, they went home to tea. That's just a fantastic quote. You can just picture it, can't you?
3: Now, as an officer in the signal service, Royal Engineers, Whoa. Arthur Hemsley was surprised to be tasked with organising ANZAC Corps Pigeon School <laughs> to ensure that people knew how to handle pigeons and also to make the Australians appreciate the importance of the messenger service. Yes, Um, uh, And this is
1: 2nd Lieutenant Arthur Hemsley of the Headquarters 1st Anzac. And he was English. I want to make that quite clear. He said this. The colonel turned to me and said, There's Australians. We keep getting pigeons to send to them, and they keep eating them instead of using them for messages. We shall have to have a pigeon flying signal score. Go and do it. (laughs) I said, I I don't know anything about pigeons. (laughs) He said, Well, now's your chance. You'll soon find out. Go to one of the pigeon lofts and get some information. So, what does he do? Well, after getting himself a little
3: up to speed, Hemsley set up a building which, could, uh, which would house the training sessions for Australian officers and key signal personnel. And he didn't really get off to a
1: very good start. And this is what he said. My first lesson uh, had been rather terrible because I had a basket of pigeons. I took a pigeon from it, put the message on the pigeon, showed the troops how to do it. But my first pigeon didn't like it (laughs) and left me. It flew round and round the room. I said, well, open the window and let him go. So he went. I had to do it all over again.
3: (laughs) Isn't Victorian punctuation wonderful?
1: Yes, it trips me up every time. And me. Now,
3: he had a huge sign erected, Australian (laughs) (laughs) Corps Signal
1: Service in Bayou. And uh, he goes on to say... That was a rather dangerous thing, because I'd only just got going with it when Major General White, that would be Brudenell White, I presume, of the Australian staff, the hero of the evacuation. I've got a book on that, Gary. What's it called?
3: Uh, Easily uh, Distracted Pete.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) was driving by and saw my impressive board, so he came in to listen to me giving my lesson on pigeons. Oh, he's improved. I was in great style with my pigeons. He said... Uh, "'I must get General Birdwood to come round and see this. It would please him, I'm sure.' "'The next morning, sure enough, "'General Birdwood drove up in his car and his staff. "'They came stamping in. "'He looked at me and, uh, and I said, "'This, uh, this uh, is one of our messenger birds.' "'He took it from my hand and said, "'Oh, yes, a very nice blue pigeon. "'I've been a pigeon fancier for years. "'He knew far more about pigeons than I ever did.' Lovely. Oh, uh, that. Oh, I don't know. Sometimes it's. I just like the first one. Walk.
3: Now, overall, Hemsley thought his school performed well. And at least there were less reports of the Australians eating the pigeons. And at this point, we'll take a, a well deserved break.
1: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns.
3: Welcome back now. There was one popular story of the Pigeon message, so popular it was told and retold then and told and again and, and retold told and again told. and
1: retold again,
3: time and time again. And this is Lieutenant Archibald Gilchrist of the 10th King's Liverpool Regiment. It was very posh, Archibald Gilchrist. And he says this. As soon as the attack was well underway, the Major General went to the Loft to await the first news, but no pigeons arrived. The morning dragged on, but still there were no pigeons. At last, a tired-looking bird entered the loft, and an orderly was dispatched to get the message and bring it to the general. The general opened it, read it, crushed it in his hand, dashed it to the ground and strode away with a face like thunder. One of his staff, wondering what calamity had occurred that could bring such a cloud to the great man's brow, carefully smoothed out the crumpled message and read, "'I'm sick of carrying this bloody
1: bird!' And this is, there are so many versions of this story. I mean, are they apocryphal or are they real? Um, we don't know. We don't know. No.
3: And I didn't want to say the word apocryphal, so... You just
1: said it very successfully. So
3: I'm going for real. <laughs> <laughs> now, pigeons weren't the only animals employed to carry messages, were they? Horses? Yes, possibly, but dogs were certainly also pressed into service.
1: Well, who knows about dogs?
3: Well, once more, it's the hapless Arthur Hemsley that found himself required to become an instant expert. (laughs) He must have been pissed off. And once more, you're going to relate what 2nd Lieutenant Arthur Hemsley of Headquarters 1st ANZAC Corps says. The colonel turned to me and he said...
1: It's dogs this time. (laughs) Headquarters are going to send 48 dogs, three dogs to a man, and you've got to deal with them. (laughs) I went to a little village, found some ground there, had it wired in. Put my dog men in there with the dogs, with their dogs, not with the dogs, with their dogs. The dogs were taken from Battersea Dogs Home of all shapes and sizes. Not little ones, but a collie or a retriever. Any large dog was good enough. They were lovely animals. When I visited him, it was a complete bedlam. All 48 of them barking at once. You could have Easily
3: distracted, Pete.
1: <laughs> Whereupon the village mayor came and complained bitterly because they barked all night and kept all the village awake. So I had to uplift them from there and put them well away in the woods where they were no trouble to anybody. They fed these dogs on fresh cut horse meat. Well, they gave the dogs the odd bits, but actually the steaks, they they all ate themselves. The dogs were quite useful. They were taken up the line, a message put on them, and off you go home. Then they come back to their handler who was waiting for them at the headquarters. They had a blue and white collar, and the orders were quite strict that no one was to touch them. But it was terribly difficult. One of the big problems was the Englishman's love of dogs. They would try and stop the dogs on their way, passing through the gun lines. The gunners would come out and give them meat and delay them. So uh, it's not going too well. Now, they then had an inspection visit from a very senior staff colonel. Now, do things always go well when inspected by a senior officer or even a, a, a big knob like yourself at Transport for London? Does, does it always go well? Yes. That's not true, Gary.
3: no. Now, Hemsley's dog team, they'd been out on a mission visiting a nearby brigade headquarters. Sadly, on their way back, his men had fallen prey to temptation. And this is what uh, Arthur Hemsley
1: says. On their way back, they went through one of the towns that had been very severely battered. The men's outfitting shop had been shot right out into the street. This dog group, about six men and 18 dogs, stopped, and they all helped themselves to brightly coloured velour hats. I said to this very senior colonel standing beside me, The lorry's just coming in, sir. The men will be taking the dogs out. They dropped the back of the lorry, and out came this little group of clowns with these funny coloured hats. Purple hats and so on. Purple helmets, I expect, Gary. This colonel was very, very offensive to me about it. Is that the way you train your men? They were quite incorrigible, these chaps. Their one job was dogs. They were not much good for anything else. One job. One job. They had one job. Hmm, I seem to have heard those words before, ringing back through my previous life. Now, all in all,
3: there are a multiplicity of methods to get mess- messages back to headquarters, but in a heavy German bombardment, none of them could be relied upon.
1: Now, um, I, I mean, this is just one of the most fantastic quotes I've ever known. Uh, it, it's from a chap called Signaller Bert Cheney of the First Seventh. Is that the Shiny Seventh, uh, London Regiment? Uh, fine body of men, and he'd he he'd made a, a series of preparations, hadn't he? He'd really gone to town.
3: Yeah, I mean he considered them fail safe, but they were they they were all rendered useless by a combination of the shelling, prevailing mist, and the eternal problems of working with. And I know all about
1: this dumb animals. What do you mean, Gary? <laughs> i know all about it, Pete. Uh, well, so so you're going to be Bert Chaney. And I just want you to... This is quite a long quote, but it, it is so wonderful, the humour of it, that I just love it. And it's one of my favourite quotes in the book. And he's from London. Lucky that.
3: One by one, our telephone lines were smashed. We endeavoured a number of times to repair them, going out into the barrage creeping down communication trenches, trying to find the ends of the wires. But in that mist and in that barrage, it was a hopeless task, and we had to get back to our dugout, thankful to be in one piece. Looking across in the direction of our visual communication system on the mound, we saw that it was impossible to see anything. The oldest lamps were unable to penetrate the mist.
1: So they couldn't send heliographs in or anything, you know, a flashy lighty.
3: Even the telescope did not help. Dashing down into the dugout, I scribbled two similar coded messages on the special thin paper, screwed them up and pushed them into the little containers which clip onto the pigeon's leg. I and one of the boys, each carrying a pigeon, crept up the steps and pushing the gas blanket to one side, threw our birds into the air and away they flew. We watched them as they circled round a couple of times and then they swooped straight down and settled on top of our dugout. We retrieved them and tried once more – but those birds refused to fly. So down into the dugout again, and another message was written and put into the small pouch attached to the dog's collar. Leading it to the entrance, I gave it a parting slap on the rump, at the same time shouting firmly, Home, boy, alley! I watched it for a minute or two as it trotted off, then dropped the gas blanket back. Even while we were still sighing with relief, a wet nose pushed the blanket aside, and in crawled the dog, scared out of its wits. All our efforts could not budge him. We pushed and shoved him, pulled him by the collar to get him moving, but he just laid down, clamped his body firmly to the ground and pretended to be asleep. He was a lot smarter than we were. All we could do was swear a lot and give him a kick. So ended all our wonderful preparations for keeping communications going during the attack.
1: That is a real story to cherish, isn't it? It's one of the... I mean, I just love the layered preparations he's made. Nothing could go wrong, could it, Gary? Nothing. And the dog, I love the bit where he says, Alé, because, of course, it's a French dog. Well, that was the problem. It didn't understand. Well, Alé could have been German. Oh,
3: good point. Good point. It might have been a German shepherd. Oh. Now, uh, a short one today, Pete, but that allows us enough time to talk a little bit about our book... Together, Laugh or Cry, which is largely, largely about the British soldier on the Western Front 1914-1918. There are some other nationalities that feature, but... Mainly Australians. Uh, there's a few. There's a a, a couple of um, South Africans. South Africans. <laughs> yeah, that's a brilliant
1: story. There's very South few African. New Zealanders. They're not. the uh, Canadians. They're they're not a laugh. A minute.
3: Now, as you've mentioned, this is the best way of supporting the podcast. If you were to buy the book, we would be very grateful. at uh, At the moment, it is available on uh, Amazon, for example. Yeah. I think uh, it's out in America, 5th of January. Uh, so that great. may well
1: be now. Uh, it's it's just. You know, we 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 at the end of this, you'll get weed, weed. we 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 <laughs> at the end of the podcast, you'll get an advert from Gary uh, telling you to buy us a coffee or 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 take a stupid subscription. Bollocks to all that, Gary. Bollocks to all that. What, what what do we want our loving public to
3: do? Oh, you mean buy the book? Yeah, <laughs> I, was, I was struggling for a minute about that other thing <laughs> we talked about.
1: What thing? <laughs> Well, they could all bugger right off <laughs> yeah
3: something like it no but it, it's now available around the world Pete around the world even
1: in Australia land
3: I believe so we can inflict pain everywhere now yeah
1: it's it, it, it's been a it's been a, a great experience writing the book and and fully enough these podcasts bring it back of course we wrote it last year didn't we uh, well it uh, started last year and it was quite a long time ago and as we go through these stories like that last story by Bert Cheney it, you, you, you just think that is really funny. But, of course, it's a serious situation for him.
3: Absolutely. And uh, good news for our listeners, or bad news, depending on your perspective, uh, we just started our second book together. What's that on, Gary? Uh, that one's called Chocks Away. So it's either about chocolate or something to do with the Royal Flying Corps.
1: And the Royal Naval Air Service, Gary. Please, please, don't forget them. Oh,
3: how could you possibly forget And a funny... possibly
1: we might mention the RAF. In I was going to say, how
3: could you <laughs> possibly forget a funny <laughs> sailor?
1: <laughs> now, on that high note, Pete,
3: yeah. I think that's enough waffle for today. That's it. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete.
1: Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, blah. us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash MH. Or visit www.blah,
3: blah, 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 blah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers.
0: Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince.